You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Well, please join me in a word of prayer. Sovereign Lord, worthy are you, our God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You are the Lord of the universe, the ruler of every star and galaxy. You are unmatched in power and wisdom. And we know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Lord, you are sovereign over Joseph and his miseries, and the evil done to him. You are sovereign over Job, and his losses, and the suffering he endured. And surely you are sovereign over us, our successes and failures, our wins and losses, our joys and sorrows. Help us to trust you, Sovereign Lord, to write our story, For you work all things together for our good and for your glory. Sometimes we have our own plans for our lives and future, but remind us that it is you who establishes our steps. Even at times when we do not understand your purpose, teach us to confess that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways in your thoughts than our thoughts. Humble us today by the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, we ask for your assistance and illumination. Open our eyes to see what you want us to see. Open our minds to embrace and to love the wonderful doctrines of grace. And open our lips to praise and to acknowledge that you are the sole author of our salvation from start to finish. We pray all this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we continue in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. So please open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians. And we'll be looking at the first chapter verses 11 to 12. Ephesians 1, 11 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. Our passage today yet again begins with this phrase, in him, that is, in Christ. This is the Apostle Paul's way of reference to those who are united to Christ by faith. 
In fact, for Paul, being in Christ is really the essence of what it means to be a Christian. If you think about it, he never even uses the word Christians, Christian once in any of his letters. Being in Christ is Paul's description of a Christian. And so in verse 11, what Paul is trying to tell us is that Christians who are united to Christ and therefore belongs to Christ have been chosen. But chosen for what? What are Christians chosen for? Well, this is one of those times where the the Greek language does not perfectly translate into English. The translation is quite difficult because the Greek word here for chosen can mean that Christians are chosen to receive an inheritance or that Christians are chosen to be made an inheritance. And I think both options are great because it's true that Christians are chosen to receive great inheritance. We have a heavenly inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The new heaven and new earth is ours. A glorious and imperishable body is ours. The love and favor of God the Father is ours. Every spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm is ours. All these things and more belong to us in Christ. And yet, it's also true that Christians are chosen to be made an inheritance for God. As we are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We are his adopted and precious children, redeemed by the blood of Christ. We were cleansed. We were bought out to belong to God in Christ. And so both these renderings are biblically consistent. But in either case, being in Christ and therefore chosen by God is a wonderful privilege and it is a wonderful blessing of salvation. Now that we addressed who the recipients of this blessing are and what this blessing of being chosen entails, we will spend the rest of our time looking at how Christians receive this blessing and why Christians receive this blessing. First, let's look at how. How do Christians receive this blessing of salvation? Well, turn your attention with me to the first half of verse 11. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him. Here we see that 
controversial word once again, predestined. The Apostle Paul would like us to know that all true Christians have been chosen by God in advance to receive the blessing of salvation. From eternity past, God has set his love upon us and has determined to save us. But this shouldn't be a surprise to you, though shocking. It's not a surprise because Paul has already told us this just a few verses before in verses 4 to 6. He writes, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. You see, Paul is unapologetic when writing to the church of Ephesus about how God predestined them. He doesn't tiptoe around this difficult doctrine or concept, but it is the very heartbeat of his praise and doxology to God. If you missed my sermon on the doctrine of predestination from a few weeks ago, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the recording, because though this is a difficult topic indeed, it is not a topic that we can ignore. It's in the Bible, and it's right here again in our text. Predestined. Most of all the great theologians and teachers in church history, such as Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Tyndale, Edward, Spurgeon, just to name a few, they never shied away from teaching on predestination. And that's because they viewed predestination as a glorious and comforting doctrine of grace. Now, if somebody stopped me on the street, grabbed my attention, and asked me this question, how do I receive the blessing of salvation? How can I be saved? Well, I would tell them to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who was crucified to make atonement for sins, and then he rose again to conquer sin and death. That's what I would tell them. But you see, I answered the question from a human perspective and what a person must do in order to be saved. Of course we must believe. And Paul implies this human responsibility of personal faith in verse 12 when he writes, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ. Surely people must put their hope and trust in Christ to be saved. For sure. But on the other hand, if we were to ask this question, 
How does a person receive the blessing of salvation, not from our human perspective, but from God's perspective? Well, it was according to God's sovereign plan, the purpose of his will. He predestined those he chose unto redemption. But because of our pride, we are tempted to find every reason in ourselves for why God chose us. A reason in ourselves for why God loves us. Did God choose us because of our foreseen faith and repentance and good works? Did God find us lovely because of our small attempt of devotion to Him? You see, the heart of the matter in this debate about predestination is this. Does God choose us because we chose God? Or do we choose God because God chose us? Ask yourself this question. If you are a Christian today, did you choose God first? Did God choose you because you chose God first? While all the other non-Christians in the world persist in their unbelief, was there something so outstanding about you that you were able to choose God? Or did you choose God because God chose you first and set you apart before the creation of the world? Well, the latter is what Paul plainly tells us in Ephesians 1, before the creation of the world. He chose you. He predestined you. But also in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul writes, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now what this means is that those who are predestined will be effectually called, which refers to the work of God drawing his chosen people to himself. And without this inward call of God, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot and we will not come to believe. Unless the Holy Spirit first changes our hearts, first convicts us of sins, opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ, and draws us to himself, we will not come to believe. And this is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. He says in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. In fact, the doctrine of predestination and regeneration of the elect 
is woven all throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, when Jesus addresses the unbelieving Jews in the crowd, he says to them, But you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus asks, how can someone be born a second time? And Jesus replies, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus here is talking about a spiritual rebirth. Another word for rebirth in English is regeneration. To generate again, re-again, generate, produce to generate new life, to be born again. You see, the natural condition of man is spiritual deadness and spiritual blindness. And Jesus is saying that only if the Holy Spirit initiates the miracle of new spiritual life in a sinner, they cannot come to believe and therefore, they cannot even see nor enter the kingdom of God. God regenerating a sinner is not God forcing or coercing a sinner to believe, like a robot. That's not it. It is God taking the initiative to bring light, to shed light to a darkened mind, to soften our hardened and stubborn hearts, to lift up the blinding effects of sin, changing their disposition, so that the sinner will freely and willingly believe and choose and love Christ. Furthermore, Jesus uses the wind to illustrate the Holy Spirit's activity. He says that the wind blows wherever it pleases, and so it is with the Spirit of God. In other words, just as we can't always tell where the wind is coming from or which direction it's blowing or where it is going, we cannot always track and predict the work and activity of the Holy Spirit and whom he will touch. There is an element of mystery here. The comparison made between the wind and the spirit is even more clear if you are a Greek reader because the Greek word for wind is pneuma and the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, the same word. The point is that the wind cannot be controlled nor always predicted by human beings. And so it is with the Spirit of God. 
we cannot control him. We don't control God, and we do not always predict his ways. God will do as he pleases. God will regenerate whomever he desires. But I think the most comprehensive statement in John's gospel about God's sovereign grace in salvation is found in John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. It reads, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Now John is absolutely clear. How does a person become a child of God? How does a person receive the blessing of salvation? Well, they must believe. They must receive Christ and believe in His name. This is the human perspective. But John continues, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. What this means is that being an ethnic descent of the Jewish line does not make you a child of God. Furthermore, your human decision, your human effort, did not ultimately make you a child of God. For if you are a child of God, you have been born of God. You have been born again by the Holy Spirit. God has chosen you. God has called you and regenerated you to receive and to believe Christ. This is the divine perspective. You don't even get to choose who your parents are. You don't even get to choose where you are born. You don't even get to choose whether you're born in a Christian family. It's all a work of God. This is the divine perspective. And so how long will you be content with only thinking about the human perspective. Some of you are ready for solid food. No longer infants. Can you humble yourself and acknowledge that you are saved by grace alone, not by your works, nor by any conditions that you met? If you chose God, it is only because God chose you first. It was all the work of God, all by sovereign grace, lavished grace. He has set his love upon unworthy and undeserving people like us before our birth, before the creation of the world. My uh, theolo theology professor from seminary, Sinclair Ferguson, would say that divine sovereignty is like a strong medicine for us to swallow. Some Christians find the first taste 
of it quite bitter. For swallowing it also means swallowing the pride that says, I am the master of my fate. But once pride is dissolved by the absolute lordship and sovereignty of the one who can be trusted absolutely, the effects are wonderfully therapeutic. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if it is true, if it is true that we choose God because God chose us first by sovereign grace, then it must also be true that by that same grace, God will enable us to keep on choosing God, to keep on choosing Him. No matter what trials or tribulations come your way, if God has determined to save you, He will keep you, He will preserve you, He will sustain you by His sovereign hand. And this is wonderfully therapeutic. Many years ago, when I was a young new Christian, I was evangelizing downtown Toronto, and I met this very interesting person. He was an older gentleman, and he told me that he had been a pastor of a church. But he quit being a pastor, and he actually stopped following Jesus altogether. His story intrigued me, and so I befriended him to see if I could change his mind, of course. I shared the gospel with him, but it seemed that he knew the gospel better than me. He knew the Bible better than me. And I was so blown away that somebody like him, who knew the Bible, who was a leader of the Christians, could just walk away from the faith. How is that possible? My encounter with him started this journey for me to investigate. And I did some more research and study, and to my surprise, I found countless, hundreds, if not thousands of pastors just like him who left the faith. And to be honest, it frightened me, scared me. And there was this one particular biography of a man named Charles Templeton that really broke my heart. And I'm still reminded of him every time I drive downtown because I always have to drive by the church that he used to pastor at along Avenue and DuPont Street. And it's this big, beautiful, historical church building that now has this big sign over it that says, Hare Krishna. Ever since it was sold to a Hindu organization. Charles Templeton was an internationally renowned preacher. 
known to be one of the greatest Canadian evangelists in the 1940s and 50s. And he was best friends with the greatest evangelist of our time, Billy Graham. You know Billy Graham. They together traveled the world. Together they started this worldwide movement to lead tens of thousands to Christ. But after many years of a thriving and successful ministry, Charles Templeton tragically walked away from Christ. And what you find in his biography is a horror story. I can't get into too much detail here because it's too long. But his fall begins with just a few little doubts and just a few sins and a few betrayals. Nothing too crazy or out of the ordinary. And that's the scary part. Because I, as with any ordinary Christian, could relate with his struggles and his doubts and his questions. I remember as I was reading his biography, I was just on my knees in my room, weeping. Because I was confronted with this reality that there were these great men who was more passionate than me, who was smarter than me, wiser than me, more experienced than me, who couldn't finish the race and called it quits. And it broke my heart because at that moment I realized that no matter how passionate I feel about Christ right now, no matter how much I confess to love Christ right now, I am but a weak and frail sinner and my heart is prone to wander. If it depended on me to keep on choosing God every single day of my life, I have no real security. I have no real guarantee. I have no real assurance. And even now, as I stand before you today as a pastor, I can honestly tell you that if it depended on me to keep my salvation, I would lose it. If I could lose my salvation, I would lose it. Because I know myself to be a weak and frail sinner. But let me tell you some good news. God wants you to know today, through the hand of the Apostle Paul, that it does not ultimately depend on you to keep your salvation. It does not depend on you, ultimately. Paul writes in verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It's not just that God works in all things, but God works out all things and through all things to ensure and to achieve 
his desired purpose. God, in his sovereign power and infinite wisdom, orchestrates all events and every detail and every factor to accomplish his purpose in your life and in my life. If God has chosen you, then he has determined to save you. And it will come to pass. His purposes cannot be thwarted. He will preserve you by his sovereign hand so that you will persevere in the faith till the end. This is why we can have real assurance of salvation, you see. Even if you go astray for a time and season, those he has chosen cannot finally fall away. The good shepherd goes after the lost sheep until he finds him. For the Son of Man can he came to seek, he came to seek and to save the lost. He shall lose not one of his sheep, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. You cannot be lost. And we can have this eternal security precisely because God is sovereign over us. He is in control. God is in control of you, of your life, of your future, of your destiny, of the universe. He is in control. I was talking to one of our brothers here in our church the other week who was telling me about this very impressive video that he watched, a YouTube video of, of a chess match between two AI programs. And he was describing to me how this AI was calculating every possibility of every move, predicting the next two, five, ten steps ahead. And this brother said to me, that it was like seeing a tiny glimpse of the omniscience of God. He was oddly comforted to remember that God is infinitely more knowledgeable and wiser than artificial intelligence. And so he could trust God with his life, even if things look like it's going south. And things were definitely going south for Jacob's son, Joseph. Remember Joseph? When his brothers got so jealous of him because Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And so the brothers sold him off into slavery to the Egyptians. And Joseph was a victim of great injustice. But God had a purpose for Joseph's suffering. Because many years later, 
Joseph becomes the acting ruler of Egypt, and his brothers, who had sold him off, comes to him begging for food. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 18, we're told that his brothers came and fell before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What an amazing revelation. Though Joseph's brothers meant evil and harm against him, he says that in the grand scheme of things, God meant it for good. Meaning that God had purposed it for a greater good, a greater outcome for the saving of many lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is in control. Even over the injustice, suffering, and evil. Though God is not morally culpable of evil, of course, God is not evil. Though He is not directly responsible for harm done to us, God is sovereign over it all. And so, your pain, your suffering, your hardship, your trials are not meaningless. They're not random. He permitted them in your life. He allowed them. He permitted them in your life. And God is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Is there a sense of mystery here? Yes, of course. You may never fully comprehend why some kind of harm has been done to you on this side of heaven. But we know that His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are infinitely higher than your thoughts. And the most spectacular mystery of all is this, that the greatest act of evil in human history, the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God, turned out to be the greatest message of Christian hope, love, and grace. The Roman officials and the Jewish leaders meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives and sinners here in this room. If you doubt the love and character of our sovereign God, look no further than the cross that he bore where he bled, where he died. Jesus Christ laid down his life as a ransom 
to redeem sinners like you and me who would trust in Him. And if you can trust God for salvation, of course, you should be able to trust God in your hardships, in your suffering, in your circumstances, in your situations, with your future. You see, you can trust God not only because of His loving character that He displayed on the cross, but you can trust Him precisely because He is sovereign. He is in control of your life and your future. If you are predestined, you will be called, you will be justified, and you will be carried into glory. That is our destiny in Christ. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. You will stand, and I will stand, till the day of glory. He will sustain us. So we have addressed who the recipients of blessing are and what this blessing of being chosen entails and how Christians receive this blessing of salvation from the human perspective, from the divine perspective. Finally, we must ask and conclude with this question, why? Why do Christians receive this blessing of salvation? In verse 12, Paul writes, In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. God's glory is the supreme goal of salvation. It was always about God's glory. God predestines and works out everything. He does all things to the praise of His glory. This is the ultimate end, His glory. Beloved Church, our redemption promotes the glory of God alone. For we are nothing but vessels of mercy and His grace. We do not take credit for why we choose God. We do not take the credit for keep on choosing God. We do not take the credit for finishing the race. We do not take the credit for salvation in any part. God is the sole author of our salvation from start to finish. Therefore, God alone gets all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. And so, beloved church, as we meditate on this truth today, may we grow in humility and may we mature in assurance of salvation and may we be consumed by the glory of our sovereign 
God. Let us pray to this end. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for who you are. You are omnipotent, unmatched in power and wisdom. You are the ruler of the galaxies, the ruler of all creation, the ruler of our lives. You are in control of our lives, our future, our destiny. And so, Lord, as we confess this truth about who you are, help us to be humbled. And we are saved by grace alone. And Lord, help us to find assurance. Assurance in the grace of our God. Assurance in the sovereign power of our God who sustains us till the very end. And Lord, may we transfer all the glory and honor and praise to your name, not to our name, but to your name. Be the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.